After 18 years of war, America and the Taliban signed a peace deal at the end of February. It's time, after all these years, to go and to bring our people back home. We want to bring our people back home. Will this deal lead to a lasting peace? Or, as coronavirus distracts the West, will it undo everything that NATO troops fought for? Everyone's eyes been sort of taken off what's been going on in the world's longest war because of corona. But in fact, the war is escalating again. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, have the Taliban won the Afghan war? Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com My name is Anthony Lloyd, and I'm a foreign correspondent for The Times. Was this really your 27th visit? Yeah, it was, which dates me a bit. Suddenly, the years go by, and Afghanistan, which I first went to in, I think it was February 1996, I'm still going to now, and some of the main protagonists are people I knew back then as well. We've all got older in the war together. Your most recent trip to Afghanistan was in March, just as coronavirus was about to sweep across the world. Had it hit Afghanistan? The Minister of Health predicted just a few weeks ago that up to 25 million Afghans could be affected by corona. It was very difficult then to know how much impact it was having. At that stage, there were no confirmed cases in Afghanistan because there was no testing for it. What were people saying about it? Well, they were listening to the news and seeing how it was beginning to set in in Europe and the States too. 
There was a mixture of things. Some people thought it was revenge from God against the West. Some people thought it was just a problem in the West caused by our own sort of physical weakness that they consider themselves much stronger, of course, being Afghans. But also, you've got to remember, many Afghans have got a different attitude towards death after 40 years of conflict, after four decades of war. And I remember one Afghan elder, I think he was 82. This was a guy who had led a Mujahideen fighting unit against the Soviets during the Russian occupation, whose own son had died as an adult, killed by the Americans. And he said to us, you foreigners are corona. You talk about it as a disease, but it is you who fill our graveyards. And by that, he meant we die young in war fighting foreign invaders. So the arrival of a virus is not such an issue for us. It's another way of dying. Now, the reason you went to Afghanistan wasn't coronavirus. It was to look at the impact of the Afghan peace deal. Tell me about that. People talk about it as a peace agreement, but it was more of a withdrawal agreement. It was a bilateral agreement signed between the Americans and the Taliban in Doha. And basically, in essence, it outlined a schedule for the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. And it conceded most of the Taliban's major demands. For a start, there was a timetable for an American withdrawal, providing the Taliban were in negotiations with the Afghan government the Americans and NATO might have fully withdrawn from Afghanistan by next summer. So it wasn't even that there had to be a peace agreement, a peace deal, or the implementation of a peace deal for all American troops to have been removed from Afghanistan. The Taliban would get sanctions against them lifted and have various other measures that were very much to their advantage and very much to the disadvantage of the Afghan government. So this is a deal between the Americans and the Taliban. Where were the Afghan government? Because it sounds like these terms would really weaken their hand. The Afghan government were not included in the talks. The Afghan government, for whom so much has been sort of sacrificed and spent over the last 19 years, were actually absent in a deal between the Americans and the insurgents. The only inclusion actually for them in the agreement was the clause that there must be some sort of ongoing talks, intra-Afghan talks. Do you think it's possible to have a lasting peace if the Afghan government doesn't have a say in it? Well, I can't think of a recent successful peace deal which has excluded the government from negotiations or from talks. So... Will this deal actually make it harder for the Afghan government to deal with the Taliban once we've all left? It's even worse than that, because the backdrop to Doha was this very bitter presidential dispute between two contenders for the Afghan presidency following the highly contentious presidential elections last year. And in fact, neither of the two leading rivals agreed to back off. So two men... President Ashraf Ghani, the incumbent, and Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, his main rival, were both inaugurated as president on March the 9th in ceremonies that each of them had run, and both swore on the Holy Quran to serve their people as president. The Americans tried to solve this impasse, because without that, with two presidencies, you can't even agree on the delegation that are then supposed to talk to the Taliban. 
but they didn't manage to solve it. And then in what looks like a fit of pique, the US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo cut $1 billion worth of US aid to the Afghan government, much of which was designated for Afghan security forces. So the predicament and the position of the Afghan government is even weaker. America cut a billion dollars worth of aid. A billion dollars worth of aid. One thing is fair to say, the position could not go on as it had been, in that the Americans have been there since 2001. Uh, nearly 2,500 American soldiers had been killed in Afghanistan. Their overall investment in the war had been over $2 trillion, with very little show for it. The war was actually increasing in aggressiveness. There were more people killed in Afghanistan last year than in any other war ongoing in the world. Is this basically America wanting out? The Americans were desperate to get out of Afghanistan, or have been during the time of President Trump. I mean, he sees it as a sort of gangland fight between Afghans in which Americans should never have perhaps been involved. We've got elections coming up in the States in November, most likely, and against the backdrop of corona, the Trump administration is even less interested in being involved in Afghanistan. It wants out. So that against that backdrop, really, the Doha deal of February the 29th can be seen as, as a desire of the Americans to leave Afghanistan, which is quite understandable, but it's just the way it has been done looks set to uh, actually worsen the war rather than end it. How do the Afghans see the deal? Well, the government and government forces are extremely depressed by it. The real danger as well is that the deal has given the Taliban a narrative that they have defeated another superpower. Just as their forefathers defeated the Russians, the fighters on the ground do not see the Doha deal as a peace deal. They see it as a totemic moment of American defeat. I met some of the more traditional sort of Taliban grandees, and that was the same narrative. I remember one elder I met, he was in his 80s, uh, he was rather fabulous, he had a resplendent beard, and of course... Uh, his turban, his Pashtu, and he had a walking stick, and he had all these scars. And he'd actually been imprisoned by the Americans in, in the infamous Bagram detention centre after the overthrow of the Taliban. And uh, he sat down to talk with all his family around him and his elders in his village. And he said, it is as well for the Americans that there is a sea between us and them, or the Taliban would pursue them all the way back to America. I met one particular Taliban commander, a field commander, who's 30 years old, up near the border with Pakistan. And he was laughing at the notion that the Taliban should ever sit down with the Afghan government. And he was like, why on earth would we want to negotiate with Democrats at this time of our victory? You know, as soon as the Americans have gone, we're going to move on Kabul. We believe that most of the Afghan government forces will collapse. I said to him, aren't you exhausted of war? Do you not want peace? And he said, look, of course we're exhausted of war. We've been fighting one way or another for 40 years. But if it takes another 40 years, so be it. We're fighting for an Islamic emirate. How do ordinary Afghans view this deal? Afghans like the thought of freedom. They have a desire for freedom within their own hearts. But after so long with war, many have the definition of freedom as being just the cessation of violence in their lives, stability and security, rather than the more abstract notions of freedom that we might have in a democratic society. So many Afghans 
do not like the Taliban. However, the Taliban have an appeal of security and stability that is not offered to them by the Afghan government, in whose areas, you know, there is often, not always, but often widespread crime and disruption, chaos and violence. There's no overall picture, but never in the last 40 years has Afghanistan been so divided, so atomized by conflicts within communities, within villages, towns, governments, cities, as it has been now. It's astonishing to think the country is more divided now than at any time in the last four decades of war. To understand Afghanistan and its future, you have to look back over its recent past. Anthony knows it well. He was there before 9-11, when the Taliban were in power. I think that a lot of people now remember the Taliban, perhaps with rose-tinted spectacles in a way. But a Taliban's rule also has its own peculiar brand of misery. So, for example, when I was in Kabul during the Taliban time in 1996, the city was in a state of abject misery. I think it was something like 25% unemployment. People were in the bazaars. They were selling the most abject items in order for money, like empty biros and shoes with holes in the soles of their feet. Most emblematic of this wretchedness, I found, was these rumours that human bones were being sold from the graveyards. And I didn't believe it at first until I went to check it out, went to some of the cemeteries, and found, indeed, there were gangs of children who were being employed to dig up graves, gather bones, smash them up so they weren't so easily discernible as being human, and then sell them to bone traders who'd mix them up with animal bones and truck them off en masse to Pakistan, where they were being boiled down to make glue and cooking oil. And... I just, I remember that as really the low point for Afghanistan. Now that happened during the Taliban rule. Yes, of course, there was some more degree of of stability and of law and order in the Taliban zones, but the economic hardships, the deprivations were extreme. It was another brand of misery. You would see the vice and virtue patrols beating men with whips in order to get them into a mosque at prayer times. I came across a thief once he'd been tied to a lamppost and had the things he'd been caught with, buckets and some vases, I think, been tied around his neck and he'd been covered in oil. It was fearful and it was bleak. But may I say that for many Kabulis, the Taliban's austerity was, I can't say preferable, but less undesirable than the Mujahideen's era of civil war that had preceded it. The country was basically in a state of civil war, with the Taliban facing some strong opposition. Who were the other side? I mean, the major leaders fighting against the Taliban were warlords. Principal amongst them was a man who became not known as a warlord. Ahmed Shah Massoud was actually, for a time, the Minister of Defence. He then headed up the Northern Alliance. Now, the Northern Alliance was the leading group fighting against the Taliban in Afghanistan, who went on to be allies of the Americans at first, when the Americans first invaded. Ahmed Shah Massoud did have this aura to him, some kind of shining, call it what you will. He was a very, very charismatic character. And he cared. He cared about people and he cared about doing the right thing. Many of his own men were far less scrupulous than him, and I often wonder whether Afghanistan's fate might have been different if he had remained alive. 
Known as the Lion of Panjshir, he fiercely fought the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s. He was assassinated by an Al-Qaeda suicide squad disguised as journalists on September the 9th, 2001, two days before 9-11. His brother says he was committed to serve Afghanistan. He grew up in this country. He was always at the service of his people and understood the pain of his countrymen. That is why he is still in the hearts of every Afghan. The last time I saw Ahmad Shah Massoud in the autumn of 2000 in the north, it looked like the Taliban were going to win the war and beat the Northern Alliance at that stage. It was a bleak moment for the Northern Alliance. They were being edged into a smaller and smaller slither of territory. On the 9th of September, Ahmad Shah Massoud was killed in this suicide attack. And yet, 48 hours later, the jets slam into the Twin Towers and suddenly the Northern Alliance, who had down at their lowest ebb and about to fall apart, get the world's most powerful army as their, as their ally and in vengeful mood too. And the momentum built up for a battle to retake Kabul from the Taliban, which happened in October 2001. I was on holiday in France when Ahmed Shah Massoud was assassinated and then the Twin Towers came and I remember the news of his death came out. When it came to me, I was remember I was being almost as shocked as the Twin Towers happening. The two events were so connected in my mind that it was obvious that I should go straight to Afghanistan. I remember ringing up the foreign editor at the time saying, look, I should get ready to go to Afghanistan immediately. And he was saying, yes, you should go. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You were there for the battle to retake Kabul from the Taliban. What was that moment like? I was in Afghanistan, but I think... 20th of September, 21st of September, something like that, and crossed the mountains and then went down south to the Shamali Plain, which was a Northern Alliance stronghold and where they were gathering their fighters to retake Kabul. So I got there well ahead of the coming battle. 
For me, it was very dramatic because I waited for the weeks and weeks hanging around the front lines. But suddenly you knew the battle was going to occur because you've got thousands more fighters moving up to their positions in the line and you could see what was going to come. The morning that the battle actually started, one of the war captains there called Gul Haider, and he'd had his leg blown off by a mine years earlier. So he had a peg leg. And there he was with his binoculars and suddenly he screamed, now the Taliban lines are breaking, go, go, go. He was shouting his men like, don't let them get away. And there's just all these hundreds of Afghan fighters just roaring. I mean, I remember them roaring and ululating and holding up their weapons as they shot forward to no man's land. And the first thing across no man's land was a tank, an old T-55. And they were running behind its tracks and, you know, Taliban firing back against their running group behind this tank. And that kind of scene was being replayed all up the front line across Somali Plain, groups of Mujahideen going running across no man's land, huddled up behind tanks as they got in and among the Taliban zones. And, and it was the moment to do it. So I remember thinking, right, and I ran behind the tank with this one group of Mujahideen and sticking in the tank tracks because there were mines in no man's land. So you sort of huddle, you can't go to the left or right. And I remember thinking it's quite odd running behind a tank. You're very limited as to what you can do, just stay in the tank tracks so you don't tread on a mine. And then the other side, the tank ruled off. And I remember jumping over the lip of a trench and there was a guy at my feet who had just been killed, a Taliban fighter, and Northern Alliance fighters already looting his body. And then just over the other side of the trench, three Taliban who had been hiding among vines suddenly broke cover and some of the Mujahideen started shooting at them, but far more just ran after them. I mean, just ran after them then and there. And they were stunned by a sort of rocket blast. And then about 20 Mujahideen caught up with them and just killed them where they were and took their belongings and then ran on to the next objective. And it was, it was as battles are. The whole thing was swathed in smoke and dust and men kind of get to that sort of red in tooth and claw moment. People don't have the same expression in their faces as they do normally. I remember probably the most searing image was one fighter who had a prosthetic leg. His leg had fallen off. He had one crutch and his rifle. And he was hopping along with one leg to try and catch up with his mates during the advance. He was just desperate to be part of it. This guy who had lost his leg... The Taliban lines broke. In fact, they were held by a rear guard. Most of the Taliban left Kabul that day. So the next day was the actual day that Northern Alliance entered Kabul. At the time, it did seem like a complete victory over the Taliban. But as the years dragged on, the war got messier. How did it all go wrong? The Taliban were a totally marginalised force. Most of them had fled sanctuary in Pakistan. But around that time, they started coming back. And there are a number of key moves which were either missed or mishandled by the coalition and the Afghan government. For a start, the Taliban had not been included in a subsequent deal. Then you had rampant, widespread corruption within the Afghan government and many abuses conducted by militias who were nominally serving the Afghan government. Afghan people, particularly in Pashtun areas, more and more angry with the coalition, more and more angry with the Afghan government. But then you get the coalition acting violently in order to suppress those re-emergent Taliban fighters in communities. And that, in turn, rather than squash the insurgency, actually inflames it more and more. And by the time you get to 2009, it's in full, full flow. The coalition launched a surge on the Taliban, but... It doesn't seem to have worked. Hundreds of soldiers died. 
and resentment grew amongst the population. Why was that? How did that happen? Try and imagine American and British soldiers in Afghanistan as the same way you would imagine being in Britain and having Afghan soldiers based here. Locals will get quite and very easily antagonised by foreign forces patrolling their streets. It doesn't matter if those foreign forces are supposed to be the harbingers of peace and stability or not. You're going to be naturally resistant to the idea of it, and you're going to get naturally very angry if those foreign forces start shooting at locals. And so by the time you get, as I say, to like 2009, 2010, the years of surge, where you've really got a full-on war going on down in the south and much of the east, they're less focused on, well, what are the ultimate benefits of democracy versus the Taliban or anything like that? They're not thinking like that. They're just thinking this is war. This is war with a foreign invader killing our people. So what happened when foreign troops started to withdraw? So the drawdown was an interesting moment because that was the moment at which we were going to see, actually, once a large number of foreign troops leave Afghanistan, will the fighting naturally die down? Will the Taliban say, oh, look, the foreigners have gone, we're going to put down our weapons and start talking with the government to make a peace deal? That was the hope. But in fact, that hope didn't happen at all. What happened when the foreign troops went was the Taliban continued fighting against the Afghan government. And in fact, Afghan government's casualties have been so severe over the last three years that they've stopped publishing what they are every month. And has Doha, has the peace deal made a difference? One of the conditions was supposed to be a fall in violent attacks. Has that happened? Everyone's eyes been sort of taken off what's been going on in the world's longest war because of corona. But in fact, in Doha, the war is escalating again. The Afghan Office for National Security published recent figures saying that since Doha, there have been 55 separate Taliban attacks per day. Why is that? You've met a lot of Taliban fighters and even a a would-be suicide bomber. What did his story tell you about the state of Afghanistan now, after all these years of war? This guy was called Fawad, this particular suicide bomber I met. He had a younger brother called Sharib. Fawad was in his early 20s. Sharib was, I think, 19. So their appetite to die began in 2018 when there was a night raid by Afghan special forces on their village. I'm not sure exactly when on during the night raid, and neither are they, but they do know that when they got home the next morning, they found their father and their two sisters, aged 16 and 6, shot dead in the house multiple times they'd been shot the father's hands were tied behind his back and looking at the bullet riddled bodies they vowed vengeance and they went off to join a suicide training camp just over the border in Pakistan run by the Haqqani network which are a Taliban affiliate however their widowed mother who had nothing left of her family bar her two sons went off on a hunt for them. Finally, eight months later, she tracked them down to the training camp in Pakistan. She begged the Taliban there, please release my sons, my husband's been killed, my daughters have been killed, I've nothing left by these two boys, please stand them down. And there was a series of meetings, eventually the Taliban leadership agreed to let the boys go. So she returned to Afghanistan with her two sons, And yet, Fawad told me that they were both so desperate to die that Sharib, the younger of the two brothers, a few days later, ran away and joined Islamic State as a suicide bomber. But he was like, I want to be a suicide bomber, I want to kill and die and go to paradise. 
as soon as he had gone off to join Islamic State, then Fawad said to his mother, well, unless you let me go back to join the Taliban as a suicide bomber, I also will run away and join Islamic State. So his distraught mother had no choice but to agree. So by the time I met Fawad, Fawad was a suicide bomber waiting for a mission with the Taliban, and his younger brother was a suicide bomber with Islamic State waiting for a mission. And the two used to talk by phone. Fawad was trying to persuade his younger suicide bomber brother to come and join the Taliban to perform a suicide mission. He kept saying, yeah, I keep saying to my brother, I'll get him a really good mission if he just comes back and join us. He wanted to kill security forces in vengeance for what had been done to his family. And the concepts of vengeance are often completely overlaid with those of war aims in Afghanistan as well. But their story was one, it was an acute story. But actually what it was about, which was a family smashed apart by war, leaving radicalised young men whose only real wish in life was to die, is not a unique story in Afghanistan. It's emblematic of the atomized society brought about by four decades of war. It's imperative to seek peace. Nevertheless, you can't just impose peace in a country. You have to manipulate and massage a process in order to achieve peace very, very carefully and in a very balanced fashion. And if you try and do it in a slipshod, hasty, railroad fashion, that of which Doha has been undertaken, then you risk, as Doha does, actually inflaming a war rather than palliating and ending it. You covered parts of the war with British troops. Given the losses we suffered, does this deal raise questions about whether it was all worth it? Well, it certainly won't be easy to answer that question if the Taliban end up back in power in Kabul. Or, I would think, if Afghanistan has slid into a state of abject misery and civil war all over again, then it won't look very much worth it. One of the successes of the war was supposed to be the progress made for women's rights and education for girls. Will that survive after we withdraw? There's nothing at all in the Doha agreements to protect the rights of women. There's no mention of democracy, there's no mention of human rights, there's no mention of women's rights in the Doha deal between the Americans and the Taliban. So as you boarded the plane to leave Afghanistan, what were your thoughts about its future? I mean, the augurs and omens are very, very bad for the country in the wake of Doha. You're looking at Taliban who have grouped in the provinces around Kabul. You're looking at this backdrop of political crisis. You're looking on top of the advent of corona. You're looking at a world who have, by large, looked away and the Taliban could move again to try and take Kabul. I never thought that was possible, so I've always sought a reason to go back to Afghanistan. And I was aware, as the walls begin to go up around the world, as corona advanced across it, that as I left, it might be a long time before I could go back and that the country really needed foreign eyes and foreign oversight. I mean, not mine, but, but everybody's. A lot of concentration was required in Afghanistan in the wake of Doha and it wasn't going to get it because corona was happening and corona was making the world a, a place of divided communities and divided countries, each with their own introspective problems around the virus. So was the war in Afghanistan worth it? 
I'm sure most people will try and escape the cliched notion that, oh, Afghans love war and it's always been a place of war. And despite our best efforts to bring something better, the Afghans sort of messed up their country themselves. Now, it's true that some elements of Afghan society regard war as a way of life and business, but not the majority. And in fact, the reason why Afghanistan is in the state it is now is not due to some sort of preordained nature of people to fight. It's due to a series of cataclysmic political and military mistakes which occurred during the coalition's tenure of power, the corruption of the Afghan government, the failure to address Pakistan's support of the Taliban during those years, and Afghanistan's misfortune to lie where it does geographically in the world, along geopolitical fault lines, where it has so often been invaded by outside powers, and where outside powers so often have their hand, their money, their weapons, their armies inside Afghanistan. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the foreign correspondent for The Times, Anthony Lloyd. You can read more of Anthony's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Brenna Daldorf, Edward Drummond and Ben Mitchell. The executive producer is Leo Hornack and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicola Rawfast. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. And in these uncertain times, you can keep up to date and well informed on coronavirus and so much more every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.